This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm here today with Emily Mokros to talk about her new book, The Peking Gazette in Late Imperial China, State News and Political Authority. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Emily, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks for having me. Of course. So as a place to start, um, could you say a little bit about how you and this book really started? How did you come to work on late imperial China? And how did you come to work on the Peking Gazette itself? Sure. So I started thinking about China as an area of study relatively late in my undergraduate career. Um, I was choosing somewhere to study abroad and I got Beijing, which was my second choice. And so I had no experience with China and I went And this was a period uh, before the 2008 Olympics. Beijing was really in a buzz. People were very excited. There was a lot of emphasis on sort of cross-cultural interactions. And I had a lot of fun. And I was sort of searching for a focus for my history degree. And so I came back and I applied that towards um, thinking about China. And I was really interested in the last decade of the Qing and the Republican era, so the period of the scramble for concessions, and thinking about points of cultural connection rather than uh, conflict um, and scholarly and urban culture. So that's a little different um, from what I do now. Um, After college, I spent some time in Taiwan and I started exploring research projects. And the first research project that I really got into um, was a debate over the a proposed uh, reconstruction of the Yuanmingyuan, or the old summer palace in Beijing. Um, and this debate took place in the early 1870s, and then it was revived of an area of interest in the Republican era. So that was my initial interest in it. Um, but then I started moving back and looking at this debate itself. And I found that um, you know the research project basically drew me back to late imperial China to an field that required a different set of archival and linguistic expertises and um, to the topic of the Peking Gazette. Because as I started to look at this debate, um, which was basically on the idea of, was it too costly to reconstruct this palace? What were the points, purposes for it? How would it um, uphold imperial authority or not? I noticed various minor bureaucrats citing each other's opinions verbatim, and I wondered how did they read each other's work? And I noticed them actually citing reading each other's work in the Peking Gazette. And so at that time, I went and consulted uh, um, Endymion Wilkinson's 
uh, Manual for Chinese History, an earlier version that's out now. And it said that the Peking Gazette was a useful source for Chinese history. And that's all it said. It says a lot more right now, but it doesn't it didn't say that then. So I thought, huh, that's interesting. And then I did some more reading and I found, um, I think, an article that was uh, written by John King Fairbank, who's one of the sort of founders of Qing history in the United States. I think it was in 1943. And he said this was an ideal subject for a monograph. And so I felt, you know, particularly propelled towards the direction of making that the focus of my dissertation and then later um, my first book. Great. I have to wonder how many projects started with Wilkinson. And I say that because um, I remember uh, several people telling me uh, when I started out to go go look at Wilkinson and see what Wilkinson says. So, Yeah, um, and it's funny when actually the gaps are the things that lead mm. you towards an ideal project. Yeah, but speaking of gaps, I have to ask because it sounds like a real sliding doors moment. Um, what was your first choice of study abroad locations? <laughs> oh, it, uh, it was Pune, India. Okay. <laughs> so something very different. Right. Um, great. Well, again, sliding door moment. <laughs> you ended up in Beijing. Um, well, we're talking about gazettes and getting into that. And, you know, uh, Wilkinson, who said so much and yet so little on the topic. Uh, could you sort of introduce gazettes uh, for us, especially for listeners who've maybe not yet had a chance to read your book? What are gazettes? Uh, you know, what do they look like? How are they made? What do we need to know about them? Yeah, so this is a question that has been associated with confusion for a very long time. Um, So the word gazette, right, it summons up the idea of a newspaper. And Peking Gazette is basically a name that has been given to a system of Chinese uh, language publications associated with the government by Europeans since about the 17th century. Um, And it's basically a type of... um, illusion or comparison they made to the press that they recognized from their home countries or from um, other places in Europe. In China, it um, operated a little bit differently than the kind of contemporary examples they were thinking about, which would be um, the London Gazette or the Gazette de France in Paris. So um, in the Qing period, what we call the Peking Gazette or Jingbao, uh, is composed largely of documents that are coming directly out of the government system. So this isn't someone stationed as a reporter on events. Instead, they're literally transcribing documents or summaries of documents that have been uh, sanctioned for publication by the state. Um, and the real meat of those documents are two sets. Uh, one are called Uh, edicts and rescripts, and those are basically things authored by the emperor. And the other are memorials or things authored by officials. And so historians of uh, late imperial China, this is kind of the meat of what um, historians of the state work with already. What's interesting about this then in terms of thinking about it as a comparison to a newspaper and as a news source is that it's not really intended to be the latest or the juiciest from Beijing. So there were a lot of sort of rules around how documents could be released um, and in what order and for what priorities. So, for example, memorials almost always prompted a response from the emperor. But 
their memorials could not be published in gazettes until the emperor's response had already been released. So this led to a kind of backwards character where you would see the decision before you saw the proposal or the conversation. Um, That was kind of confusing at first, but it was intended to sort of maintain a sense of um, bureaucratic certainty or bureaucratic order. Uh, Another characteristic that was going on was a a delay that was put on um, the publication of documents. Another one uh, involved the sort of priorities of what's coming out. So uh, the imperial state is not thinking in releasing these documents of, you know, talking about really salacious scandals or, you know, the very top secrets of military affairs. What they want to do is make sure that the bureaucracy is well informed enough to work in sort of a, in a moral standard, um, according to standards of accountability. And that's a really difficult personnel issue across as vast of an empire as the Qing. And even if we're thinking largely about their Chinese holdings, which is the main focus of Gazette's. So this was kind of a shorthand bureaucratic solution. If you offer people information about personnel concerns, um, concerns related to matters of kind of high stakes, like the civil examination system, then you kind of have a backup in case of problems of moral failings, um, especially amongst the officialdom. So in the book, I see this as kind of is a case of what I called curated transparency, where they're using documents of the state in order to elevate state agendas, um, but they're very explicitly not releasing everything um, in any way. So the term gazette, therefore, is kind of a parallel to thinking about political news that's emerging in Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries, but it's not an exact Uh, match. And then that match becomes ever more precarious if we think about the later transitions in the history of newspapers in the West as compared to those in late imperial China. Great. So you started us down sort of thinking comparatively, um, (laughs) as you were describing there and thinking about uh, comparatively between what Gazette is doing um, in China as compared to sort of news and gazettes elsewhere um, in Europe in particular. But something that you talk about in the book is how gazettes differ between the Qing and dynasties that came before. Um, And as you say in the book, gazettes, you see them as sort of being a signature institution of the Qing state. Um, So I'm curious about the Qing part of this. Why is it important to think of gazettes, the Peking Gazette, as sort of being um, unique or belonging to the Qing? What made Qing gazettes so different to what came before? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's still one that's difficult to figure out because one of the main differences between the Qing and what came before is that we have a primary existing source base for the Qing, um, although it is fractured, and we do not have that for any earlier time. So when we're talking about earlier periods, what we basically have are readers or archival documents who use the terms that we recognize as referring to gazettes in the later period, but we don't actually have physical examples of that, which means that there's kind of an uncomfortable um, uh, lineage that's being built that may or may not be true. And so what we've got into, therefore, is if we think about earlier periods, that that parallel to news becomes ever more uncomfortable, but it's also taken up sometimes a little bit freely. So 
there have been efforts to trace the history of gazettes as far back as the Han dynasty. And this is related less to the realities of, you know, a flourishing newspaper in ancient China than to the kind of imperatives to find an indigenous source of the newspaper of news in China amongst an early generation of scholars of the history of journalism. What we know is that there were efforts to maintain communication between the capital and field locations. And that makes sense. That's a necessity of any bureaucracy. But there are early efforts to try to standardize those as a sense of bureaucratic um, certainty and uh, sort of levelness, uh, like like I mentioned, um, is sort of really articulated and perfected in the Qing. Not really for the Han do we have really concrete um, information, but starting the Tang Dynasty, so that's kind of the Middle Ages of, of Chinese history, as some people say, we have um, a real uh, uh, outsourcing or a real sort of breakdown in, in central authority. Um, and we have the emergence of these military commanderies who are fairly autonomous. And what we see is that they are maintaining uh, liaisons in the capital in Chang'an who are sending communications, sometimes customized to their interests and sometimes more uh, standardized. And so these become known as court reports. In, this, in the Song dynasty, the dynasty that follows that, the court sees that tendency as one of the things that kind of um, shifted power away from the center. And so they try to reverse that. And so we see the the Song dynasty court making a real effort to standardize what reports are going outward to provinces and to officials outward. And so they're standardizing the production of court reports, perhaps to a measure that even exceeds that of um, of the Qing, but that's a little bit unclear at this point. And so in that uh, period, you know, we've had some really interesting work on the court reports uh, by Hilde de Vere, um, among other people. In the Ming dynasty, we have something of a reversion to the Tang case. Um, so we have the court reports that are coming out of the capitals in Nanjing and Beijing. But we also see the emergence of a little bit more independence in terms of how the copies are being produced um, for individual power holders and the sort of stakes that they're taking up with them. And then really in the late Ming, we see the emergence of a lot of talk about unofficial gazettes or unofficial copies. And maybe the idea that these are no longer citing directly from documents at all, but they're really talking about gossip or they are talking against the grain of what the court wants you to know, or they're responding to the type of backlogs that are really characteristic of the late Ming dynasty. So that's a really long story. Um, but, but what it gets us to is that in the early Qing and really in the Qing conquest period, uh, when the, the Qing founders are entering Beijing, they're quite aware of the both the the example of gazettes, but also their downfall. And they see an opportunity to re-centralize um, and to create this as an important communications institution of their dynasty. It's also a um, an opportune instrument to try to recruit the loyalties of a Chinese bureaucracy, a largely Chinese bureaucracy, whose labor and um, efforts they need Uh, to staff uh, China, but that is largely reluctant. So they see this as a way of convincing the Ming bureaucracy um, 
of the legitimacy of the state. Look, we work, right? We're very responsive. You can see that our documents are coming out and they all look right. And so we see these coming out very early after the conquest of Beijing. And notably, we don't see them coming out in any other languages, not in Manchu, and not really applying to frontier regions um, as that becomes more applicable in the the 18th century. Um, So really, this is a tool of of the Qing Empire to think about governance in China and information as a sort of signature portion of governance in China. And then I've gone on a little bit, but I just also wanted to say that another thing that makes this quite different is the later history, right? So later in the Qing dynasty, the the Peking Gazette will commingle with newspapers that look more or less as we know them now, and will have to grapple with those types of issues of multiple voices talking about politics. And so that makes things different from how we think about earlier dynasties, where we don't have that same quality of a multivocal um, information landscape. Absolutely. The end, as we will, as we will get to the ending of this story looks very different than that. Um, as you were talking about uh, the earlier histories of what these of what these documents look like. Uh, thinking about the Qing, you know, you've already touched on this when you when you brought up um, the idea that you introduced in the book of curated transparency. And this really gets us to thinking about what does transparency mean in the Qing? What does secrecy mean in the Qing? Um, because of course, the standard narrative about the Qing, the one that I was taught, <laughs> is that when it comes to the Qing information order, the Qing largely were quite successful at maintaining secrecy and really what is often characterized as top-down censorship. And your book really complicates this, I think, in really important ways. You, you talk in the book about the Qing prioritizing both transparency and secrecy. So I wonder if you would talk a little bit about this, this narrative of the Qing being so successful. Uh, why do you think this is sort of has lasted and how how does your book sort of interrupt this this very standard narrative sure so there's three aspects to this two of them are a little more scholarly and one of them is kind of the the general zeitgeist and it's a little more flippant but i think it's relevant and that's a kind of sense of the oriental mystique around um things associated with the chinese palace uh with uh order and power right? The forbidden city, the type of language that's used in guidebooks, in popular film, in stories, right? It's hard to get away from that. And so like it or not, it's um, been part of the way that we think about China in the West for a long time. Um, But a little bit more seriously, right? Uh, So uh, as as scholars of China know, there's sort of widespread um, destruction or demise of archival materials, materials related to state activities, um, especially at levels below that of the very highest, right? Below that of the palace um, and of the center for the Qing. Um, and that's happening both because things are just thrown away, they're not prioritized, but also because of widespread destruction in the 20th century, right? So um, our stores of county or provincial archives are fairly thin compared to those of the center. And even at the center, we're really looking at the things that were prized and stored. And so amongst those things, what scholars found um, 
in the 1970s was a huge array of what we know as secret memorials, right? And so this is related to an institution that developed in the the very late 17th and early 18th centuries um, to allow a confidential channel of communication between the emperor and certain field officials. Um, And this was indeed largely successful for a time. Um, Over time, a lot of people wanted to start sending secret memorials, and so uh, it needed to be adapted. We had a new institution called the Grand Council emerge in the 1730s to sort of share the burden of communication governance uh, with the emperor. And so both the secret memorial uh, system, the so-called secret memorial system, and the Grand Council become slightly less... um, Uh, closeted or cloistered, uh, I should say, than their early ideals over time. And that happens fairly quickly. Um, That happens sort of because of the bulk of communications happening through them and the uh, sort of demise of of, um, administrative capacity. But it also happens on purpose. So uh, what I found in my research on the links between communications channels was that the the, the Qianlong state, so a, um, a rain period uh, really closely associated with things like censorship and top-down control, which ruled China uh, from 1735 uh, to 1796, right? Uh, in the Qianlong reign, they very quickly created a route for documents that had been s- submitted as secret to be publicized in gazettes, right? So there was a concern to make sure that the system of curated transparency, which had been fabricated in the mid-17th century, could withstand a transition to a new type of communications and could still present those as needed, right? So again, we're not having top-level military conversations heading into public view, but if things have to do with personnel concerns, you know, an official has robbed um, the county treasury and run away and is being censured. Those are the things that we want to get out there because we want to make sure that folks don't follow that example um, and that the bad guys are caught. So um, the to kind of wrap that up, right, our idea of the secret memorial is kind of all pervasive, um, but it doesn't look the same way that we might assume at at the front. Um, And it really interlocks with other uh, channels of communication that are more or less open in the Qing in ways that we're now starting to understand a little bit better, right? So it's just really come to dominate um, since the 1970s, our sense of what the Qing is. um, And now we need to adjust that a little bit. And then the third part of the answer, you know, you mentioned censorship, right? And so in the same reign period, the Qianlong reign, Uh, we have a very notorious project to collect many, many books, right? The Imperial Four Treasuries Project or um, the Siku Chuanshu Project. Um, And in this project, we know that there was also destruction and and censorship or changes to books happening, largely on the quality of um, commentary about ethnic division, um, certain labels about the Manchus um, and other um, ethnic groups, or commentary on the past. So commentary on the Ming-Qing conflict and a commentary on other conflicts that involved um, so-called Chinese and non-Chinese foes. And so on that case, we've come 
uh, in some scholarship to see the Qing as sort of a censorship state, one that destroyed books, um, one that um, restrained opinions. And that um, was that idea was really propelled into the forefront by a generation of scholars in the early 20th century who were looking at a Qing court that was an imminent demise or had just recently fallen and really had a a lot of bad things to say about it, right? And so um, we haven't quite escaped from that. So the censorship that happened um, under that project was real, Um, but to focus on literary censorship is to ignore a really vast realm of publishing um, and knowledge output that existed in late imperial China that had nothing to do with those agendas. So the Qing didn't exclude things like gazettes or administrative publications from that imperial four library treasuries project because they found them to be objectionable. They excluded them because they were of little interest. Um, These were functional Books. Um, these were things that were informing the work of governance. And so we need to understand, therefore, that you know, censorship was limited in, in some ways to things that seemed to under those agendas. Now, that's not to say that things published in gazettes didn't sometimes um, receive scrutiny, uh, but they were rarely as heightened or as sort of... Um, a totalizing as we might assume. I love thinking about the not so secret, uh, secret memorials and the censorship that is not so um, censoring. Uh, thank you for outlining that. And you, you, you were talking there about, you know, this vast realm of publishing that we have um, in the Qing as long with sort of, you know, the destruction of materials, not everything, um, survived, not everything made it. And this sort of gets us to thinking about commercial, commercial, move us to thinking about commercial uh, publication, commercial printing, because you note in the book uh, that, you know, while the Qing court did, you know, sponsor um, publishing, the printing of, you know, routine government documents, government texts like the Gazette was really a commercial, um, was really done on the commercial marketplace. But at the same time, there's not a whole lot of documentation about that. We don't have the kinds of records that you might um, imagine if you're more familiar with what (laughs) what records about commercial publishing look like in other contexts. So I'm curious about the sort of sources that survive for this. Um, Could you talk about the kind of sources that you use in your book to talk about commercial um, publishing and where does sort of working with physical, the material objects, the gazettes themselves fit into this in terms of the kind of sources that are available? Yeah, that's a great question. And for I, I sort of sidebarred the issue of commercial publishing earlier because it always sort of throws people through a loop to think about this fairly controlled publication and then having commercial publishers involved in it. And they say, you know, well, aren't they, you know, looking for the juiciest gossip and aren't they doing things against imperial command? And I, the answer is not really, right? These are more like coffee shops for hires, like the Kinkos of late imperial China <laughs> than they are, you know, Gawker or something like that. So um, most of the source base that I had to work with to document 
what the commercial publishers are doing and to really make the case that commercial publishing is happening and happening quite differently in different periods and in different local contexts are the gazettes themselves. Uh, I do have a few examples of interactions with the court um, from archival documents, but those are fairly limited. And then there are also a few examples of um, writings from the early 20th century of uh, Gazette publishers who were kind of on the wane uh, during that period uh, talking about their work, but again, pretty scarce there. So for the material record itself, it was really important to me to find um, the Gazettes and to look at them in kind of wide uh, chronological array, because it had really had been assumed that this wasn't possible and that there weren't enough to study, that there wasn't actually a source base. And I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, even though in 1943, John Fairbanks said you should write, somebody should write a monograph about this, um, it wasn't done for a long time. Um, so, and that's not to say that I was particularly ingenious about it. It's just that it's become easier to, to find things uh, largely through digitization, but especially kind of the availability of library catalogs all over the world. So the starting point for my uh, consideration of kind of material record of gazettes was actually in London um, and in a collection at the British Library. And this is the largest that I know of a comprehensive collection of gazettes that exists in the world. There is a very sizable collection of gazettes also in um, the National Library of China and the, the old books branch, but it's um, it's a little less um, neat around the edges of, of who's putting it together and for what purposes. And the story of that British Library collection is really interesting um, because it tells us a little bit about how we can derive clues about the publishing history. So the collection begins in the very early uh, 19th century with a few scattered publications, and then it becomes far more comprehensive um, in the 1840s, 1850s, and it's very, very comprehensive after 1860, where we actually have multiple copies of gazettes from different publishers um, for each day, different formats of gazettes that are coming out, right? So this is a clear indication um, of the commercial print industry uh, happening. The reason that these were collected was that um, in the 18th century, um, largely French sinologues had written about the utility of gazettes for uh, studying uh, the Chinese government. Um, many of these were missionaries. Uh, and the British were very eager to find a way to leverage um, uh, le leverage information on China and use it largely for trading purposes. And that's something that they had felt quite shut out of um, during the early during the 18th century at large. So um, they're really based in South China. And they start uh, purchasing gazettes that are available there. Uh, and that one of the main people that's doing that uh, is Robert Morrison, who is known as the first uh, Protestant missionary in China. But a lot of the work that he was doing because he didn't get paid very well as a missionary was working for the East India Company and later um, for the British, although short-lived because um, 
he died quite soon after. So anyways, so he's working for them as a language teacher, as a linguist, as an interlocutor. And he's using these gazettes to teach himself Chinese, um, but also to kind of say, here's, here's, our, here's our conduit to the top. Here's how we're going to figure out what the emperor wants um, and how we're going to convince these local officials to do things our way and to get it done. And this takes hold pretty strongly. And so when the East India Company loses its uh, monopoly uh, and when the British um, Empire starts um, establishing a formal hold in China, uh, first under the superintendency of trade and then later in consulates um, after the opium wars, they continue this pursuit. And so they're really madly purchasing these um, gazettes. And so we remember you might remember that uh, uh, foreigners are not allowed to have permanent um, diplomatic residences in Beijing earlier than 1860. So that means that the entire source base that we have for the Gazettes prior to 1860 is coming from other places. And so there are clues on these um, on the basis of how they were copied, notes on the covers that tell us where they're coming from and how they were produced. Uh, some of them are printed, some of them are manuscript. The print techniques that are used are quite variable. Uh, one of the most distinctive print techniques that's happening here, which is really different from the mainstream of Chinese publishing, is the use of movable type printing. Uh, these are very crude carved movable types. Um, and this is happening uh, in Beijing, in as far as the very end of the dynasty, but it's also happening in earlier periods as well. Um, and the, the imprints from different print shops look quite different, right? So we can kind of almost painstakingly look at these different examples that reproduce largely the same text and see that um, the reprints that are happening and the types of printing that's happening in different locations is quite variable. Um, sometimes the manuscript copies are happening on paper that's purchased by uh, the, the client who then takes it to the copyist and re, re writes out the Gazette for them, right? So there's a variety of commercial interactions that's happening to get Gazettes into the hands of consumers. Um, we know that this commercialization of Gazette publishing seems to have happened quite early. So the Qing state never had an interest in publishing Gazettes directly. Um, they never had an interest in doing this out of the imperial printer in the palace. Uh, they didn't really have the materials to do so. Uh, these things sold for quite little and the sort of circulation patterns didn't match the way that they circulated palace editions. However, there were periods of problem um, or periods of conflict with uh, commercial publishers, particularly in that kind of um, hairy period that I was mentioning with the rise of the secret memorial system. Um, these are this is the time when we see the most um, the most sustained uh, official complaint about commercial publishers not doing what they're supposed to do. And so there's actually a period where the court, um, again under the Qianlong Emperor, uh, tries to better regulate the publishing of gazettes um, under government supervision. However, um, based on the documentation that we have, uh, I'm still fairly convinced that this remained a private enterprise just under firmer supervision for a period. And that supervision actually fell apart um, by about 1820. So as we go forward, uh, just to give you kind of an example of the scope of what we're talking about, um, 
largely every provincial center in China would have a commercial publisher who was responsible for government business. Uh, so this would be gazettes, but also things like broadsides or placards that they needed to put up, results of examinations and things like that. Um, and that would usually be located kind of adjacent to the, the government office in, in that city. And they would be receiving from Beijing limited numbers of uh, gazettes and other documents that then they would reprint or republish or recopy um, on their own standards. In Beijing itself, what we seem to have had is a number of fairly small capacity print shops who were operating um, first near the imperial examination yards um, in kind of the, the the eastern part of the city, but later locating to a pretty prolific publishing center called Liolichang, which is in the south part of the central city, and so really adjacent to other commercial publishers. We had about four or five of them in the um, the late um, in the sorry in the early nineteenth century, and then this industry matures to maybe ten a dozen um, for the late nineteenth century, and they're all largely printing the same thing. But sometimes they would put um, their own brand names on the cover. They would have different illustrations. They would coordinate, and so these are small capacity shops that are coordinating to supply a fairly um, dynamic and, and somewhat expanding audience for. Um, state news in the 19th century. Um, just to wrap that up in terms of thinking about the last years of how this commercial industry works, right? What do they do um, in the later years? We do have a few kind of new style um, publishers emerging to print Gazette material or these types of government documents, but they generally don't follow the daily model of the Gazette publishers. And they start, um, you know, moving away from carved movable type, which, you know, sounds really neat, but it's actually very hard to read. Um, and it's sort of a very flawed little uh, technology. It's, it's an interesting one, but it's not one that is praised for its readability. And so when they start doing that, um, they start taking up different formats in terms of chronology, packing, packaging the material together with other types of texts. And so the industry is transformed um, into something more adjacent to administrative publishing of a different kind. And we don't really see the those Gazette publishers themselves with the capacity to transform into, for example, individual news offices. Each of them is um, printing only a couple hundred uh, issues every day, and they don't have the labor um, or resources to become newspapers in their own right. You mentioned there that um, the you know movable type sounds great, but it's not that not that great in practice. I should this is I mean this is one of the the downsides to the audio format, the problems with the podcast format. Uh, it's hard to get across just how not great some of these things are. But you do have some examples um, in your book of sort of you know uh, pictures, images of what what some of these cassettes look like, and yeah, not great um, in terms of the quality of readability. So I just want to mark that that it's a little bit hard again in the audio format to sort of convey that uh, but there are there are some great examples in your book that sort of illustrate this and I'm sure there were others that you chose not to put in that were even less um, you know uh, easily readable. Absolutely. Actually, when I was talking about this kind of material source space, I'm not sure that I really mentioned the numbers right And so what I've seen is probably, a source base of about 30,000 issues that are surviving across the world um, in 
15 countries is what I've counted so far. And most of those are scattered um, in relatively individual editions, but places like the British Library have pretty large holdings. And when I first started working with those British Library holdings, they really really been neglected for a long time. Now now they've put together a really robust conservation program for them, and I'm really grateful to them for that. Um, but at that time, you know, entire booklets were stuck together. You know, they would fall apart as soon as you open them up. And then what's also interesting is that it's not just the quality of the imprint itself, but the layering of how readers are, are using them. So I would find sketches on them, annotation, um, a lot of marking up that's happening, right? So these were fairly heavily used documents. They weren't sort of encased in, in shelves um, for, for, you know, to look on as, as beautiful objects. Um, so some of that kind of souvenir purchase happens a little bit later, but in for the this kind of government enterprise that they were they were used as the kind of stuff of intelligence about China. Um, and so that led to the kind of decrepit. That was one of the factors that led to them being somewhat decrepit today. The other is just that they were not produced with um, high quality materials or under sort of um, elite circumstances that they were meant to be used. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You, you know, you mentioned there the, um, <laughs> the, the curio, the souvenir side, um, and, you know, running through all of this is, you know, readership, um, the readers, you talked about, you know, Morrison using these, but in order to learn Chinese, um, <laughs> which I love, um, it's, you know, officials using, uh, using them, but also maybe doodling on them. Um, this, I think, is you know there's there's a wider audience than just um, those in the Qing for these um, for these gazettes. Even though the <laughs> the audience inside China and the audience outside have very different ideas and are interested in very different things. Um, you know, you talk in your book. I think this is one of my favorite moments about uh, you know readers within the Qing are really interested in personnel transfers and that kind of information, and readers outside have absolutely no interest in that at all. which I was uh, tickled by. But anyways, I'm sort of gesturing here towards the sort of the topic of chapter five, which I love the title of the Qing Gazette goes abroad. And you've already sort of touched on this in talking about how the Gazette ended up um, at the British Library in particular. Um, But here you sort of trace in this chapter, the way that those outside the Qing understood Gazettes. And you know that this how um, people approached the Gazette really changed first from missionaries who defined and presented the Chinese Gazette as a sort of vector of information, a perfect um, encapsulation of everything that, that, you know, uh, that someone might need to know. And then by the 18th and really the 19th centuries, the Gazette has really become a souvenir, a gift. Um, so what sort of, what are the most important sort of factors in, in, in driving that change and how, the, the gazettes are, are, are understood? Yeah, that's an important question. And it's one of the things that I really worked on in moving this from the dissertation to the book is bringing um, this story outward to think about those missionaries and, and their contexts um, and also the materials that they were handling. So um, in, the, in the early 18th century, um, well, we have our, a, a cohort of French missionaries who have been um, exiled for not the last time uh, to South China and and not allowed in Beijing anymore. And they need to argue that they should still be allowed to stay in China, that they still have access to information about the court, um, and that 
they are, you know, to, to maintain that position. And so what they do is they say, oh, here's this gazette. You know, I wasn't paying attention to it before, but now I am. <laughs> and here's this great emperor, um, Yongzhang, right, who's the predecessor to the Qianlong. And they are, I think, genuinely impressed by the way that Yongzhang seems to be kind of an information master in gazettes. Um, he consults with this bureaucracy, he offers relief to the people, he offers really sage advice and all these things. And so they said, what a great example of this monarch at work and as a master of information and how nicely it compares with the kind of motley media landscape that we have at home. And so they really sell this and they're doing it as kind of a self-interested thing. But at the same time, the words of these missionaries are starting to go into greater circulation um, because there's a huge um, upgrowth of interest in writing about Asia that's happening in Europe. And so, as, as many folks know, many of the letters of missionaries from China at this time are republished um, in collections uh, that circulate widely, that are translated from French into other languages very quickly. And then those comments are further picked up and reprinted in histories of China by folks that never go to China um, and all sorts of types of commentary, right? So these sort of uh, very instrumental comments about how perfect this uh, information supply is and how perfect this monarch is uh, become even more exaggerated as they're sort of reprinted and taken out of context. So, um, you know, a missionary saying that the emperor, you know, wields the pen of the Gazette becomes a statement that's taken to, to call for, you know, all history and all time in Toto. And so obviously then, as time goes on, we have some folks that start to say, could this really be true, right? Is the, is the situation as well-ordered as it's been presented? And this is really coinciding with a big debate in the French Enlightenment between the so-called Sinophiles or lovers of China and the Sinophobes or, you know, haters or doubters, right? And so the Sinophiles are still saying that this instrument of publicity is what we should have in Europe and it's really the best thing around. Um, this is folks like Voltaire that are saying this. Um, but the others are saying, you know, it can't operate this way. And furthermore, isn't this a pretty egregious use of power if it is, um, it is what, what you represent it to be. Um, and I just wanted to say that, you know, in fleshing out this story, I was really lucky to work on the advice of a colleague um, who told me about a set of gazettes that were held uh, not in the National Library of France, but in the, the Arsenal Library, which is the former library of the, the kings, um, that were sent to King um, uh, Louis uh, to as sort of advice on what his colleague Qianlong, an emperor in, in China, w- was doing. Right, so there's sort of a direct sense of mirrors for princes that's that's happening, but then that mirror seems to be getting a little bit more cloudy or a little bit more flawed. Um, And it becomes more problematic uh, when the British put it into into use, as as I was mentioning, right? So they want to use gazettes not just for language instruction, but also for as leverage with South China officials who seem to be particularly intransigent to them. And they find that the officials don't always take seriously what's written in gazettes, or they don't always take it seriously as a command, a binding command that they have to take up. 
And this becomes more and more heightened, um, even as this kind of, of diplomatic collecting enterprise is getting sort of broader um, and in, in scope, right? So even as the British Empire is collecting as many gazettes as they can, they're noting that, you know, their efforts to try to force to the Qing state um, and its, its emerging diplomatic apparatus to do what they want, or at least to follow up on what they think they've agreed to, is, isn't working so well. And so what we have emerging, therefore, are characterizations of the Gazette as not a, a representation of the perfect Chinese empire, but of the flawed Chinese empire. So it has lots of flaws in it. Um, it doesn't make any sense. Why are these documents all out of order? Um, why are we talking about so-and-so transferred from here to here instead of the real important events? And that is kind of a parallel to the real kind of problematic state of the Qing. Um, so there's a conceptual mirror. And so then uh, the, the whole other sort of side of the story is as this whole process is going on, we have really wide availability, uh, availability of translations of Gazette material in newspapers published in Western languages in China and also in um, Europe and, and in America, right? So these are kind of snippet items that are translated and then republished over and over and over again as the latest from Peking. And so the name of the Peking Gazette is fairly broadly known, even if people really don't know what it's for um, in, in any substantive sense. So as travel and sort of tourist travel become a possibility um, to China in the late 19th century, uh, people will, will pick these up and they'll say, you know, here's, here's a souvenir that I've gotten, a quintessential uh, relic from the streets of Beijing. So one of my favorite examples of that kind of trade in the, these souvenir gazettes, I mean, they're, they're honestly tons of them. But one of my favorite examples is one in the collection of uh, the American poet, um, Henry, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And this was gifted to him by his friend, a medical missionary, D.G. Um, McGowan, right? And so, uh, you know, he didn't have any engagement with it whatsoever, but it maintains in his collections in, in Cambridge, right? Uh, because it was just part of his set of curios. And so, uh, we have a really widespread array of gazettes found in uh, really truly bizarre locations because people went or were given these um, uh, as souvenirs. Another ex excellent example also in Cambridge is a copy that says that the 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 giftee was received it directly from the hands of the chef emperor, <laughs> which is a, a bald-faced lie. And then this man <laughs> never went to China in, in the first place. So, <laughs> so that's, that's made it into the Harvard library. But, um, you know, it's, it's really sort of a fascinating example of the kind of popularization of this image, but not exactly as kind of the gleaming image of the empire of China, but more of kind of a tawdry pamphlet relating to a fairly tawdry empire. I think that example, your, the second one you mentioned, the bald face lie of receiving it from the from the the hands of the emperor himself. I think that might have been my favorite um, favorite example in the book. I'm glad to hear so, it because I had to do a little bit to to track it down. I had to make a field trip to New Hampshire for that. But, uh, yeah. Well. 
I appreciated the field trip, <laughs> speaking as one reader. Um, and, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the different um, different ideas of what the Gazette was and sort of, you know, tussles over what it, what, you know, what the British thought it, thought, you know, thought it was and thought it should be. I think one of my favorite uh, episodes that you talk about in the book is where you have the, uh, this is sort of really late 19th century, you have the British sort of complaining that certain events, um, you know, proclamations against anti-foreign violence in particular are not in the Gazette. And, you know, the, uh, officials saying, well, that's not really what the Gazette is, <laughs> right? They want the Gazette to be the mouthpiece for the state. And again, the uh, those in uh, Qing China are coming back with, well, that's not really what the Gazette is and what the Gazette does. Um so here we're sort of getting to the, you know, the different understandings of what the Gazette is sort of um, multiplying, especially as we get to the age of the newspaper, <laughs> which is where we sort of end at the very end of your book. Uh, and so here at this part of your book, you look at what really happened when, um, you know, newspapers in China took off, um, starting in treaty ports, but of course elsewhere. And in particular, what happened once ideas about what the news was, what the press was, what the relationship between the press and the state and news was supposed to be. Uh, so there's a lot going on Um but, I, you know, are there any really important sort of moments at the end of this story in terms of what happens to the Peking Gazette once the age of newspaper um, is sort of upon it? So it's a complicated question. And the first thing that I want to mention is the fact that all, it's sort of a paradox that the high point of Gazette publishing actually coincides with this emergence of the press in China, right? So even as newspapers around, Gazettes are publishing in their highest numbers ever. And simultaneously, newspapers uh, uniformly in the late Qing all publish Gazette sections uh, where they're actually purchasing Gazettes and then reprinting their contents. This was a technique that they used to kind of drum up an audience for their papers um, where, where there hadn't been one before. But what we see, um, especially after 1895, is a sense of dissatisfaction with the government's relationships with the press industry from the press industry itself, um, and a sort of self-conscious or maybe un sometimes unselfconscious absorption of the idea of the so-called free press, which is coming from a kind of liberal politics of the press coming out of the West, um, that the press should be un, un um not meddled with by the state. Um, so that's that's the kind of agenda that's coming out of these sort of trumpeteering early journalists. But also from the state itself, they start to see flaws in this Gazette system that they've had that's fairly decentralized and that is not, as you said, a mouthpiece for the court. Um, and they start to think, but what if we did have a mouthpiece for the state, right? Maybe we do want to have that. And so there's various proposals to establish an official newspaper. Um, some of those are coming in the um, in 1898, in the so-called 100 Days of Reform. Uh, some of those are coming afterward, thinking about a far more formalized uh, set of, of government supervision of newspaper publishing. And what we find is that um, those tend to take hold not in the center first, because the center is, in fact, in disarray, uh, but in pro provincial units that are becoming stronger, um, and in kind of non-provincial units like the, the North China or the Beiyang um, Intendancy. And those are the new representatives of government so-called government gazettes, um, which are very different publications than the, the Peking Gazette, the 
preceded it. They're much more rigorous in terms of um, orienting towards a sort of didactic sense of how people should be learning about the state and how to be citizens um, in, uh, in a new China or anticipating a new China. And so now we have all three of these coexisting, the old, the Peking Gazette, the newspaper, and the government gazettes. And so it's, it's very messy. Um, but we see a real lapse in the Gazette industry around 1907, which is when the first press law is imposed in China on the basis of the Meiji press laws. Um, and when the actual national government Gazette is, is created, which is fairly short-lived. And then the real demise um, around basically at the end of the dynasty. So uh, it's not as key to the rise of the kind of commercial uh consumer newspaper as we might assume. Yeah, thank you for for outlining that. And you know, you said that it's, you know, it's it's a complicated period of time in history, in the history of the Qing in particular. Uh, so there's a there's a lot in this chapter, but thank you for um, highlighting some of the key things about it. Uh, but I mean that's also true for the book as a whole, right? We only talked about a few moments, a few gazettes, a few curios, a few readers. Uh, there's much, much more in the book itself. But now that we're sort of at the end of your book and it's the end of our conversation, um, this brings me to you know, the last question that we always ask here on the New Books Network, what are you working on now, now that you've finished this um, particularly um, rich and expansive work? What are you, what's inspiring you at the moment? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm not going to pretend that um, a pandemic with a toddler has been my most productive uh, <laughs> period of writing. So I just wanted to reassure anybody listening. Um, but uh, two things I wanted to mention. So one is is related to this project. I've, I'm just finishing up uh, kind of deep dive into material record of, of the Gazette collections that I wasn't able to do for the book. Um, a little bit more technical on the printing and, and publishing side and going back a little bit um, earlier. And so that I'm thinking of, you know, publishing in order for folks that are interested in the history of print, but also interested in thinking beyond the history of, of printed books in China. So that's kind of a supplement to the book that didn't fit um, neatly with the argument um, of the book, or it's the sort of monograph style that I was looking for, but I still think is pretty important. And so I, I'm hoping that's going to come out there uh, pretty soon. Uh, in the longer term, I'm working on a, a new book project that's fairly different from my first. Um, so this project is very large in chronological scope, which is really fa fascinating, but also pretty tough. Um, my new project is about Beijing in the 1850s. Um, so a period in which the Qing Empire is ex experiencing a number of disruptions um, among them, uh, maybe chief among them, the Taiping uh, Rebellion, but also um, towards the end of that period, um, the Second Opium Wars, a number of different frontier rebellions, right? And so really straightened circumstances. And um, Beijing itself isn't actually invaded, but it is threatened to be invaded several times during that period. And it's really shaken um, to the core, both in terms of official circles who are trying to figure out what to do with the empire um, during this time, um, especially when the imperial authority seems really dramatically lapsed, but also down to the ground level. Um, there's really fascinating stories to be told about what it was like to be in Beijing during a time when people were being um, 
you know, strip searched for evidence of typing affiliation or when people were, you know, the shops were all closed and they were taking their horses to pasture on the grounds of the Temple of Heaven. Uh, a city that was really in turmoil in a way that we don't normally think of it because we often think of North China as fairly insulated from the troubles of the mid-century period um, until later, right, until the Boxer Rebellion. So I'm trying to think about what this mid-century period meant for Beijing and for the empire, Um, but kind of shift focused so that we're not thinking necessarily from this um, perspective of high politics, but more of how it was experienced in the city. That sounds fascinating. Uh, particularly the, 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 it sounds like very different focus, uh, very different scope, but in a way that, yeah, that sounds, <laughs> sorry, this is me reflecting on how excited I am to see that when it finally comes out and I'm doing it while I'm, while I'm speaking. So um, that sounds like a fascinating project. Best of luck with that. And of course, with the pandemic and the toddler. Um, and congratulations again on, you know, writing the book as, as we talked about right at the beginning that uh, that uh, uh, former scholars, you know, indicated should be written. Um, so congratulations on this. And thanks again for, for talking to me about it. Thanks so much.